Hi, and welcome back to Reimagine, a new podcast about people who are inventing the future. I'm Peter Drobak from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. Here's a thought. Possibility begins when we refuse to accept injustice. Imagine a world where this is our mantra. We might all feel a little more positive about our planet's future, rather than overwhelmed by its problems. At the Skoll Center, this is our mantra. In an era of lost trust and apparent paralysis to get things done, we believe we need to look beyond the status quo to find solutions to humanity's greatest challenges. And we're looking to social entrepreneurs to be the changemakers, people who see things differently. Social entrepreneurs are a lot like commercial entrepreneurs. They create opportunity that others don't see. Just like Steve Jobs, who invented a product none of us knew we wanted until we couldn't live without it, social entrepreneurs apply the same passion to the world's problems, creating a future we didn't know was possible until they pointed the way. In this series, you'll meet some of those people. From economic transformation to global health, from higher education to ending homelessness, no mountain is too high to climb. In this episode, we turn away from the coronavirus for a moment to what continues to be the greatest threat to our future mankind has ever known, climate change. But before we do, a quick update from my wardrobe, the place where I do all my best work these days. What you're about to hear was recorded shortly before the pandemic hit the UK in earnest, back in the days when you could actually meet your guests in person and record in an actual studio. At one point, you'll hear me mention visiting a bookstore. That's right, imagine going into a store with books and other humans. Suddenly sounds crazy, right? Of course, even with all our attention on the corona crisis, our climate emergency hasn't gone anywhere. So this remains absolutely urgent listening. And for an update on how the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting economic fallout might affect the climate debate in the months to come, stay tuned. Cameron, who you're about to meet, recorded a special corona postscript for us at the end of this episode. Anyway, back to the studio. We're going to focus on the role of big business when it comes to the climate crisis. More and more CEOs are sounding all the right notes on sustainability. But is big business really ready to be part of the solution? Or is it just greenwashing? First, we're going to dig into the problem. To understand what needs to be done, we need to know where we're at. Joining me is Cameron Hepburn, professor of environmental economics and the director of the Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment here at the University of Oxford. Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Very happy to be here. So Cameron, to start off, set the stage for us. Uh, in the early months of 2020, what's the situation with regard to climate change? Well, uh, things are changing far more quickly, far more dramatically you know, in the last 12 months than they have probably in the last 30 years in the sense that I think the world is waking up to just how serious this problem is. The language has shifted. We're talking about a climate emergency which is accurate. 
And the impacts are starting to hit home simultaneously across the world in many different places, different sorts of impacts, but all the things that we expected 20, 30 years ago, bushfires in Australia, floods here, you know, sodden earth that's being continually rained on. So all the extreme events we're seeing, the fires in California, et cetera, fires in the Amazon, or the melting of the glaciers, et cetera, that's at a one degree level of warming. So these, these impacts scale probably exponentially. And so the concern is that we end up in a in an out-of-control spiral to a planet that, frankly, isn't habitable by humans anymore. So that's what we're worried about, um, but you know, there's an awful lot we can do. You mentioned a moment ago that in the last year, we've sort of recognized some of the things we've been predicting would be happening for the last 10 or 20 years. Why do you think the world has been so slow to act? Well, this is a difficult challenge for many people to get their heads around. I mean, CO2 is an invisible gas that we breathe out. What's wrong with that? Humanity wouldn't be alive on Earth without CO2. So in some sense, it is a life-giving gas, a carbon dioxide. And so the science is, is easy to get confused about. I mean, in fact, the basic science is very simple. You put more of a gas that traps heat into the atmosphere, and lo and behold, it's going to get warmer. I mean, it's, it's almost that simple. But it's been difficult for people to get their heads around. So that's one element, the science. The second is that our way of life and our prosperity has been predicated on doing the very things that's causing the problem. So people don't want to be told you can't live a wealthy and a prosperous life. You can't um, use your car. Or you can't get on the plane and go and see your family abroad. And so there's a natural psychological response to that. Uh, well, I kind of pretend I didn't hear that or, or just ignore it and, and get on with business as usual. And then the final element is that we haven't until recently had the set of optimistic, widely available solutions where you can both address the climate challenge and get all of the other things that you want uh, out of the economy. And I, for me, that's where business is so important here. We, we win on this challenge not by asking people to give things up. We win by being smarter about coming up with the solutions, the technologies, the business models that provide people with what they want, but in a way which also addresses climate change. Got it. So let's talk about the role of, of business. I think that a lot of people would say that historically at least – Business has not necessarily been part of the solution when it comes to climate change. And by putting profits first has um, created a lot of pollution and done a lot of damage to the planet. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's not unfair. And it's not just business. I mean, we're all consumers. It, it's, it's our economic and social and financial systems. And they've delivered an awful lot of prosperity, but an, uh, an awfully huge set of problems that we're now having to grapple with. Looking backwards, of course, business has been responsible for an awful lot of the problems that we're facing, whether it's the energy companies, your big oil and gas producers, or, or even worse, the coal producers, or even across the whole supply chain. And the challenge here is that it's been very easy for business to provide a kind of short-term apparent fix you know, indicate some of the good that they're doing while not fundamentally changing their business models. Do a little bit of green stuff on the side here and make sure that's up on a billboard, but actually continue with business as usual, which is extracting coal or oil or gas and burning it. And I think consumers for a while were you know, a bit tolerant of 
okay, provided you're doing some good, I will still keep buying your products. I think that's shifted now. We're at a point where it's not okay to be saying, uh, as some of the oil companies are saying, we're going to make sure that our scope one and scope two emissions are zero. So what do I mean by that? That's the emissions that are involved in extracting and producing their product. Without talking about the scope three, which is the emissions that are involved when you buy petrol and you burn it in your car. You know, it's not okay just to use some renewable electricity to extract oil from the ground and then sell the oil to someone who's going to burn it. You know, I think consumers have seen through that now. Uh, and there is a, a deep skepticism of greenwashing. People have had enough of it. And I think we're at a point now where actually most businesses realize that you almost have to walk the walk before you talk the talk because it, the risk is of reputational damage by saying that we're doing all the good things here and someone will interrogate you and they'll find out that actually you're not. Well, you're about to meet someone who was one of the first CEOs of a big firm to walk the walk on this issue. For 10 years, Paul Pullman was at the helm of Unilever, one of the oldest and largest consumer goods companies in the world. Whether you've heard of Unilever or not, you probably got some of their products in your cupboard. From tea to ice cream to soap, Unilever's hundreds of brands have massive reach around the world. During his decade at Unilever, Paul became an iconic CEO by putting sustainability at the center of the company's business. Among his many other accomplishments, in 2016, he was chosen by former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to be a sustainable development goals advocate, tasked with helping to build support for the UN's SDGs. Paul has since gone on to co-found Imagine, no relation to this podcast, which aims to bring businesses together to combat climate change and poverty. Now, you might wonder why we're talking to a former Big Shot CEO on a podcast about social entrepreneurship. Well, it's because we think of social entrepreneurship not as a business model, but as a way of solving problems. Use the entrepreneur's toolkit, creativity, vision, grit, resourcefulness, to fix broken systems, and you're a social entrepreneur. That means you can be a social entrepreneur whether you're a founder or part of a big organization, whether you're in the private sector or a nonprofit or in government. Some of the best social entrepreneurs I've ever worked with were civil servants. What matters is that you have an entrepreneurial streak and a systems view. You'll see this when we talk to Paul Pullman. I began by asking Paul how the notion of putting sustainability at the heart of the company came about. I started by deeply understanding what made this company tick in the past and what had we lost over the years. And that brought me back to the deep values of Lord Lever, who already talked about a, a business concept which he called shared prosperity. So this Unilever Sustainable Living Plan that we put out at that time, which really had as objective to uh, decouple our growth from environmental impact and increase our overall social impact, goes back to the roots of the company to some extent, but then now firmly embedding it in the overall strategy of the company. It was needed for uh, reasons of, of getting our growth back and making the company externally focused again, if you want to. But it was also needed for what society was asking us. It was very clear to me that uh, the system that we had created was unsustainable and that people would not accept 
companies around that would actually make it worse, that we had to put business models out there that were quite different, uh, business models that were more inclusive and business models that were more in sync with uh, modern nature, if you want to, mm. and companies that actually can show over time that they make a positive impression or impact in the world are companies that are going to be around and companies that make things worse will be rejected over time. And I think we've seen ample evidence of that happening. So if we go back to 2009 then, conventional wisdom is really that social and environmental purpose are kind of secondary concerns in business, or that has been the case. So you're coming into a company that is struggling financially in the wake of the financial crisis, and you start talking about sustainability. How was that received? Where did you face resistance? Well, frankly, technology wasn't really that well developed 10 years ago. And perhaps some of these issues that you wanted to solve were not readily uh, solvable. And at the same time, we didn't have much evidence. There was a lot of skepticism out there. And Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy certainly was ruling. So the first thing I did was make clear that we were going to run our company on a long-term business model, not a short-term business model, which we had been doing, to be honest, a little bit, and uh, provide space for people to do the right thing. If you want to address these worldly issues, you need to have a little bit more space than quarterly reporting. So we abolished quarterly reporting. We changed our compensation systems for the long term. And that was an important signal, one of many signals to change this culture. And then secondly, when we put out our business plans and objectives, we called them the compass, sort of the direction we wanted to go. We made very clear that we were not there for the shareholder return, but that the shareholder return was a result of what we were doing. So it's a purpose-driven model and and profit through purpose, not profit and purpose. Mm And uh, we made very clear that our prime responsibility was towards the citizens of this world, or our customers, if you want to, and consumers. And so changed a little bit where we would put the emphasis or focus. Now, when I abolished uh, quarterly reporting, the share price went down 8% because uh, the company did not have a very good performance. And when a new CEO comes in and does a thing like that, that's a little bit off the wall, I guess. But I, uh, I just sat through it and uh, believed and still believe today that ultimately the numbers will talk for themselves. And in the case of Unilever, that got translated to a 300% shareholder return over the last 10 years and a growth that was significantly ahead of the industry. So we did deliver in the end, but it took a while to uh, get that confidence. You know, Stephen Covey in his book, uh, Seven Habits, says uh, you cannot talk yourself out of things you've behaved yourself into. And it was very clear to me that it would take a little bit of time for us to build that trust again with the financial markets as well and behave ourselves into a different direction. Let's talk a little bit about what actually went into it, because at the time, there weren't really roadmaps for a company the size and scale of Unilever to put sustainability at the heart of business. Correct. Did you have an idea of how to do it when you started? Not at all. And uh, we were actually pretty scared and uh, and, uh, feeling outside of our comfort zone. But... uh, I felt the challenges that we needed to address, uh, challenges of climate change, the uh, growing inequality, the issues of planetary boundaries, needed to be addressed with a certain level of courage, and courage is on the border of fear, to be honest, where you might not have all the answers. So we did two things. We want to decouple our growth from environmental impact because we're already using more resources than the world can replenish. So it sounded right to me. So we said total decoupling of our growth from environmental impact. But the first thing we did was to take responsibility of the total value chain. There are many companies that outsource their value chain and also think they can outsource their responsibilities. That doesn't quite work anymore in today's world. It should have never worked. Mm. That means if you're in the food business, you're responsible 
for deforestation or people being stunted or food waste as well as obesity on the other side. So we measured our total impact. And then the second thing we said was, whilst we put this audacious goal out there, we cannot really do it alone. We need to do that in partnership. It was very clear to me even today that perhaps companies individually can address you know, 20, 30, if you're lucky, 40% of the issues that uh, society demands them to solve. And most of the things now where we are at need to be solved at a different level than the issues that where they have been created which means a different form of partnership. So we said, really, if you believe in this overall objective, join us. And uh, and we made it very human. We said, we frankly don't have all the answers. This is an objective that we set ourselves because we believe it is right. And if it's right, you need to pursue it. And that's basically the, the story of the last five years where we brought industry groups together and tried to move financial markets to the longer term, tried to get out of deforestation globally, try to move into the human rights uh, aspects of, of the total value chain with the whole industry. Uh, and these were more transformative changes, obviously, where we needed the whole industry to change also for us to be able to be successful. Could you give an example of one of those instances where Unilever helped to sort of shift uh, an industry in this way? Well, for example, we, we created the roundtable of uh, sustainable palm oil. We created the Tropical Forest Alliance. We brought governments and companies together around the uh, UN assembly in September at uh, basically focused on climate change. And we put coalitions out there around uh, net zero. Uh, we brought the big uh, traders together, the cargoes or the ADMs or the bungies or the drivers, uh, the big users of these uh, these materials and made firm plans Together with NGOs, obviously, that uh, we had the same definition of what is deforestation, what isn't deforestation, what is sustainable, what isn't sustainable. A lot of work goes into that. And then working with uh, governments, uh, in this case, mainly government of Indonesia and Malaysia, to uh, put different things in place, moratoriums, uh, monitoring systems, having enforcement mechanisms in place. That's all hard work. But we spend a significant amount of time on that to be sure that that happens because we know also at the end of the day if we only can provide these materials by cutting the lungs of this world which are the forests then consumers are not going to accept that longer term. And you see that backlash happening obviously. So to make these major system changes and this is just around the area of sustainable sourcing that we've talked is a lot of hard work and obviously you're up against vested interest and sometimes people that have a different point of view but that makes you more determined to move forward because what we're talking here about really is the future of humanity so these are big things that need to be worked speaking of the future of humanity you were an early champion of the sustainable development goals uh, the 17 goals for yep. human progress and environmental protection that were adopted by un member states in 2015 talk a little bit about the sdgs why they're important to you and why you became so involved so this is a comprehensive roadmap 193 countries signed it as you said in september 2015 and that's what we're now uh, you know putting forward we um, put a commission together, the Business and Sustainable Development Commission, to really look at the sustainable development goals from a business point of view. And we found that about 80% of these goals, of the 169 uh, uh, targets, if you want to, uh, require active involvement of business. We also found it's an enormous opportunity, an opportunity to create uh, $12 trillion incremental benefit for a global economy, create 380 million jobs by just looking at four areas, uh, you know, mobility, food and uh, land use, uh, health and well-being, and uh, cities. 
we reached about 2,000 CEOs. What we now find is that the awareness is pretty high. And now the challenge is to integrate it fully into corporate strategies. And it is a great way to bring purpose to business, to be honest. Mm. And you see it every day in the newspapers, uh, bigger announcements and better announcements from companies uh, that go beyond greenwashing. There's always some of that, but it goes beyond there. Uh, you see a Microsoft announcement to not only go net zero on climate, but to go back to... 1975 and recuperate all the all the carbon they've put in the system you see a sainsbury announcement now you see the european green deal you see this government saying in 2035 we are getting rid of the combustion engine so the announcements are becoming bigger and better but the reality is on the current projection we will be achieving the uh, sustainable development goals only in 2071 so the entire purpose now is not to convince people anymore of what needs to be done, but to move forward faster at speed and scale. And that requires a different form of uh, collaboration, a different form of partnership. So that's why I decided after 10 years that it was enough to be CEO and move on to my next venture, which is now Imagine as one of the things I'm focused on. So talk a little bit about uh, this next phase of your career and, and what you're trying to do. I think it you talked a lot about the way that at Unilever you tried to build coalitions uh, of other companies, of nonprofits, of governments. How is that kind of systems focus translated into this phase of your work and what do you hope to accomplish at Imagine? So what Imagine is doing is a very simple thing. We, um, we started from the premise that the uh, political situation will not be easier in the next 10 years. You see more uh, populism, uh, nationalism. You see it in uh, you know the, the lack of uh, cooperation at a global level, and many of these issues like uh, cybersecurity, financial markets, climate change are global, but they're not addressed at the uh, at the intensity that is needed. So you can be cynical or skeptical. You can make jokes about politicians, but we said you know we've benefited from a political system that has created quite a lot of wealth for all of us. Perhaps now is the time for the business community to step up and fill that void. So can we get enough of the responsible businesses together to de-risk that political process? Not to take their role, but help de-risk so that we can move things forward and and actually yeah, save humanity if you want to. And the biggest issues that we have to face right now is uh, climate change and inequality. So our premise with Imagine is we bring an industry sector together and get about 20-25% of an industry sector together, then you can create a tipping point. Once you create a tipping point, and obviously you accelerate the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. You actually see when you put a collective together, they become more courageous and you hopefully create a race to the top. Very specific example in the seven, eight months we've been around now, we put uh, 62 companies together in the fashion industry and together these uh, 62 companies agreed to go to net zero by 2050, which is for carbon emissions and staying at the one and a half degrees. They t agreed to get out of single-use plastic and they agreed to work together on creating a regenerative cotton. Cotton that doesn't destroy the biodiversity but actually uh, has a positive carbon impact and obviously a positive impact on biodiversity in total. None of the individual companies could achieve that alone because it's very hard to change the whole cotton industry if you're less than a 1% user of that, and that's the case for most companies. You put 30% together, it all of a sudden becomes a different story. And governments start to listen. So in the fashion industry, we've seen the French government pass a reasonable legislation to deal with the enormous amount of waste that is in that industry. And this industry now has more companies committed to net zero by 2050 than any other industry. 
and that's a, a good sign because again it creates this uh, momentum that we're after. Hmm. Here in Oxford, we have a program called GoTo, or Global Opportunities and Threats uh, Oxford. And this year, nearly 500 uh, of our MBA students, all of them are working in teams on climate-related challenges. What message would you have for them and for other members of the the rising generation? Well, first of all, uh, half the population in the world is under 25 years old, so we don't solve the issues if we don't involve the young because they're more innovative. They're actually very positive about the future. They understand how to leverage technology. And interestingly, that generation is more purpose-driven, which I think you you need to attack it. So not only should the young uh, demand a seat at the table, I, I'm firmly of the opinion that they should have the table and fight for driving the changes at the intensity that is needed. Uh, we cannot uh, move with a straight-line business as usual. We need business unusual to uh, solve these issues. Many people in this world think that greed is good, but generosity is better. So we need leaders that are human, first and foremost, but also leaders that put themselves to the service of others, knowing that by doing so, they will be better off themselves as well and lead a life with purpose. I asked Cameron Hepburn, how important is it that we get big business on board? Well, I think it's hugely important. And as we just heard from Paul, I mean, business has uh, a driving seat here in delivering the changes. You can wait for government to kind of force it upon business or to legislate or to incentivize, or you can wait for kind of consumers to be protesting outside your front door or demanding change. Or, you know, as Paul and others have done, you can show leadership and look ahead and think, well, this is coming. Clearly, whether I like it or not, it's coming. And on top of that, it's the right thing to do, to reorient the business, to be thinking about the life cycle impacts, to make sure that you know this is a model, a business model that is sustainable for the future. And I hear a lot of people say that it really has to be governments to take the lead in sort of changing regulations and setting targets. But what do you see as the role of business in catalyzing the kinds of transformational change that you're talking about? Government has to play a role. I'm not sure that government has to take the lead. They're certainly in many instances not taking the lead. And there is a often a, a vacuum there. But actually, even in the states and geographies where government is very active on these questions, you can't do it without business. You can't do it without business for a number of reasons. I mean, first, governments need to know that businesses are backing their policy shift. Second, uh, you need the businesses to implement uh, and to be able to deliver. You you can't legislate or put in new policies if business can't respond to them technologically or if consumers can't be moved. So business is an absolutely essential part of solving this problem and in many jurisdictions is leading on providing the solutions. And Do examples like Unilever point to any kind of systemic change that's happening now in big business? We saw, for example, Larry Fink in his most recent letter to investors, he's the world's largest investor, really put companies on notice that they were going to be held to account for their social and environmental performance. And if they didn't do so, they would pull board members or pull their money. Um, So are we seeing a systemic shift happening in big business? Yeah, I think it's happening right now. It's been coming for a while. I used to say uh, some of our business leaders haven't got the memo. Well, they've now all got the memo because Larry wrote it and sent it to them all. So <laughs> they're, they're all on notice globally that this is going to be required for, of them. Uh, and I think a lot of them are now rushing to work out how their 
model fits in with a sustainable world. And, you know, I mean, some would say not a moment too soon, uh, but let's applaud those that are doing it, which, which is increasingly, you know, across, across the spectrum, across sectors, across countries. One of the things that Paul Pullman has been really successful at, both as a corporate leader at Unilever and now with Imagine, is pulling businesses together and, uh, and, and helping everyone understand the power of collective action. What do you see as the opportunity there? Well, I think the, the nice thing about uh, collaboration here is that it, you can fight tooth and nail on the main dimensions of competition in your sector, selling better products to consumers, but think, okay, for this broader issue of climate, there's a shared industry requirement to hit uh, a net zero emissions model. And actually, we're only going to get there by working together. And we're starting to see this emerge across a number of sectors. There, there are new industry or business coalitions emerging, even in sectors that only a few years ago said this is all too difficult for us, like the shipping and maritime sector. They're getting together the leaders in that area and saying, well, actually, we could do net zero shipping. The same in steel and in other industries. So uh, in some of these bigger uh, industries or further back up the supply chain, it's often the case that this is just a problem that collectively needs to be solved. And it's a lot easier when businesses collaborate with one another, obviously complying with antitrust and competition law at the same time. So let's talk about some of the conditions that are shifting for business. Uh, over the course of particularly the last year, we've seen uh, a lot more energy from consumers demanding more from companies. We've seen Amazon respond to uh, protests from, from their own employees. So in 2020, are there reputational risks for companies to knock it on the right side of history? Absolutely. I mean, they're huge. At this point, it's possibly business ending if you're on the wrong side of history. I mean, as, a, as an example, um, the Oxford Careers Service sent out a message to our major employers to say our students don't really want to work for businesses that aren't grappling with climate change and frankly we as a university don't want you hiring them. So would you please respond to this survey and let us know what your plan is to get to net zero. I've never seen such a rapid response from the business community. The idea of being shut off from hiring you know, our wonderful Oxford graduates led to an immediate and blanket level reaction to this survey of the type that is unimaginable. And I think that's, it's not just Oxford, it's, it's, it's all around the world. Staff don't want to be working for businesses that are part of the problem. Customers don't want to be buying from businesses that are part of the problem. Banks and financiers don't want to be lending or investing in businesses that are part of the problem. Uh, and the flip side is that there is major positive reputational play and advantage to be had if you can show genuinely that you've thought this through, that you've got a strategy and that you've taken a leadership position. You know, and as Paul said, he may have taken an 8% hit on the Unilever stock uh, on day one or, you know, in the, in the early days of announcing uh, annual reporting. But over the 10-year period, it was 300% rise. So, not, not only does this play reputationally, I think we'll see that there's money to be made as well. You know, one of the reasons that probably business has been slow to move on some of this stuff is that at least in the past, polluting was cheaper. Single-use plastics were, were cheaper. Are there economic opportunities in becoming part of the solution? Yeah, and it's partly because the, the new technologies that are harnessing clean energy and, and cleaner modes of production are fundamentally and intrinsically more efficient. 
we are now at a tipping point where many of these processes, business models, approaches, technologies are cheaper than their dirty alternatives. And even if they're not everywhere all the time cheaper right now, I think by and large, everybody can see the writings on the wall. You know, it's just a matter of time before um, solar beats coal in every part of the world. It's now getting towards being cheaper in a majority of the locations in the world. And it's just a matter of time before new renewables, so the capital expenditure and the operating cost of renewable energy is cheaper than just the operating cost of digging the coal or the oil out of the ground. And at that point, it's economically sensible to shut down your fossil investment and replace it with spanking new clean investment. We expect that to happen you know, within around the next 10 years. We know that the, the spend required to take us to net zero emissions world is of the order of you know, low trillions every year. Uh, there's a huge financial and business opportunity. And so if you're part of the solution, you're going to have a rapidly growing market. And if you're part of the problem, then you're basically going out of business. So let's look at some of those opportunities. Earlier, you, you talked about some of the scary tipping points that we face if we don't act quickly enough, melting polar ice caps and ocean acidification. You've done a lot of research on some of the really exciting tipping points where small changes can really have a big significant difference in kind of shifting the, the system. You call those sensitive intervention points. Talk a little bit about that and maybe give an example. Great. Yeah. I mean, the, the joy of these is that we know these kind of tipping points in the social system happen. It's not just theory. Uh, if you go back through history, all of these major changes, whether it's the fall of the Berlin Wall, shifting you know, economic systems of thinking, or even you know, the solar panels that we have today began in a very tiny way on a satellite as a, as a high-cost way of capturing the energy that the satellite was needing. So these small things can snowball into, you know, of course, solar will be the dominant source of, of energy supply within several decades. Um, so how do, we have th how do we find these small interventions, these sensitive interventions that can have a really leveraged impact? And we've got a team, I've just come actually from a meeting of 20 of us who are trying to systematically look through the space of possible interventions, identify the features might give them, that might give them leverage. They have to have an amplification effect where something small has to lead to something bigger. So, so Greta Thunberg is a classic example, a single solitary schoolgirl seemingly wasting her time with a placard outside parliament. But actually she wasn't wasting her time because it snowballed, because everybody else thought, you know what, I'm with her. Uh, and then millions join her and then you get the systemic change. Now, I think our civil society is now at what we describe as a state of criticality or a critical point where there's lots of these tipping points, positive social tipping points that can, can be moved. And some of the exciting ones that we're looking into are really rather small. So a shift in the way the big four accounting firms do their audit reports. I mean, they could just choose to prepare audits with a statement about whether the business is ready for a net zero emissions world or what some of the central banks have started to do. Is our financial system ready for this climate transition and climate impact? So they're running stress tests and that gets the concepts into the boardroom, both of financial firms, of banks, but also industrial businesses. 
are we ready for a net zero emissions world? So those kind of small asks, small interventions can snowball. And in the case of solar, the amplification effect is that the more solar you deploy, the cheaper it gets. And as it gets cheaper, you want to deploy more of it. So you've got a beautiful feedback effect there. With Greta, as the movement becomes more powerful, it starts to have more impact and more people want to join it. And the more that join it, the more powerful it gets and so on. So so you snowball there too. So yeah, there's a lot of these nasty, negative, physical climate tipping points that we really wish to avoid. And we're gonna ha- we're gonna avoid them by finding these wonderful positive social tipping points by intervening at these sensitive points in the system. There's a lot of doomsday talk out there. I was in a bookstore the other day and there's a whole series of books on climate change with with titles like The Uninhabitable Earth. And it, there's a lot, a lot of doom and gloom out there. Um, I'm hearing a lot of optimism from you. What makes you optimistic? Well, I'm optimistic because actually there's a sense in which this is a really hard problem, but there's also a sense in which it's really easy. We are, have been running our economies on a really incredibly stupid low intellect model where we dig up black and brown stuff and burn it and consider that an energy system and we're shifting to a high intellect model where we've got scientists just a couple of hundred meters up the road from us here in Oxford think about how to design material structures so that they capture more of the the visible light spectrum and indeed non-visible light spectrum or electromagnetic spectrum to capture the energy out of it so so this is a story of human intellect overcoming what are a set of challenges that actually I think we'll look back and say well we were kind of a bit stupid back in the 20th century and and then we realized that there's massive abundant clean energy all around us all the time and we just got with the program and solved it. So that was the state of play back in mid-February. It feels like a long time ago now. A lot has changed in just a handful of weeks, so we went back to Cameron to ask him what consequences the pandemic will have on the climate emergency. Here's what he said. COVID-19 has had really dramatic uh, effects on CO2 emissions in the short run. I guess it's not surprising you could tail economic activity and emissions fall, but we've seen emission declines of up to 25% in China possibly more than 5% globally for 2020, time will tell. But there's no doubt that this is the biggest drop in emissions that we've seen. Now, that's good news, I guess. I mean, the frightening news is that we do need drops in emissions of about this order of magnitude every year if we're going to be on track to net zero. I mean, to put the numbers in context, we emit 40 billion tons of CO2 a year and COVID-19 is responsible probably for taking out around 2 billion tons, uh, maybe a bit more than that. So it's big relative to past crises, but it's still nothing near getting us to net zero emissions. And for me, there are a couple of takeaways. One is that this kind of radical behavior change, while you know, behavior change is part of the story. Fundamentally, we need the clean technologies to get us to zero. We're going to have to clean up our energy system, our industrial systems, our transport system, our food system, so that we continue to have the economic activity that makes us prosperous while also being completely clean. Now, in the longer term, I guess the jury's out whether this is good or bad for the climate. It depends upon two things. First, whether we draw 
the obvious lesson that actually, you know, if you ignore the science, if you ignore the mathematics, the inexorable logic, then you're going to find yourself in a mess when disaster strikes. And you can talk about black swans and shocks and unforeseen events. But, you know, the reality is that something of this nature uh, was coming at us. I mean, we knew it was coming at us. We knew it years ago and we knew it specifically for this one months ago. And you ignore the science and you end up in a mess. And the same will be true on climate change. COVID-19 is just a kind of accelerated version of it. So you ignore the science at your peril. If we learn that lesson, that could put us on a good path. And the second key dimension for the long-run consequences is whether we recover our economies after the lockdown in a clean way. We look like spending an you know, order of 10 trillion US dollars to recover our economies. Uh, that's a very big number. If that all goes into business as usual, fossil-based economic activity, then we have really very little chance of hitting the Paris goals. If, on the other hand, you know, we use that money to make a down payment on getting towards zero, bearing in mind we've got to spend about you know, $2 trillion a year to get there, uh, then we could find ourselves in a really positive place in a few years' time. And the good news is that it seems like finance ministry officials and central bankers recognize the alignment between transitioning the economy to net zero and recovering the economy. I mean, the sorts of things that you'd want to do for net zero involve an awful lot of activity, a lot of job creation, and they have large economic multipliers. So, you know, you get your you get your money back and you, you crowd in private investment as well. All the sorts of things that you want to get the Keynesian animal spirits going to get yourself out of depression are there uh, in, in, the, in the medium and long run in a sustainable recovery. So um, I'm relatively optimistic, time will tell, but I'm relatively optimistic that, that hopefully we'll look back and think, well, the, the virus was disastrous for human health. It showed up our lack of preparedness but at least we learnt the lessons and we were better prepared for the coming climate crisis. My thanks to Cameron Hepburn and Paul Pullman. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to Reimagine, a podcast about people who are inventing the future. We've had a wonderful response to Reimagine so far. Let's build on that momentum. If you haven't subscribed to Reimagine yet, do so now. Better still, take a minute to leave us a review and a rating and tell your friends about Reimagine. It really does help our amazing guests reach more people. You can learn more about the podcast and social entrepreneurship at reimaginepodcast.com. And finally, I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what you think about the show and what topics you'd like us to reimagine. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Drobak or email me at peter at reimaginepodcast.com. And thanks. Thanks.